Okay, so we had an entire week last week looking at the passions and the virtues. And with that, looking at, in a sense, is the beautiful part of moral theology, um, what we're aiming for. Today, I've brought um, a lightsaber, a dark side lightsaber, because we are looking today at the opposite. We're looking at sin, and in particular, mortal sin, um, that sin that is so serious that if we die in that state, we go to hell. So you've read, if you've done the reading, the description of mortal sin there in the catechism. Um, so we're going to go through, first of all, the basic definition, but then basically we're going to spend an hour unpacking what each of those conditions mean in detail. So, mortal sin is when there is grave matter full knowledge and deliberate consent. Now, if you talk to old priests, they may, if they were in that era when there was a lot of weird stuff being taught in the seminaries, talk about a thing called the fundamental option. And the fundamental option theory um, is very complicated, but it basically tried to claim that there isn't really such a thing as mortal sin. That there's, that you can't in your conscious acts change what's going on deep inside. Whereas the tradition says that actually we are a unified being, and actually what I do in my concrete activity can actually change what I am inside. To use that word, fundamental option, whether I am fundamentally for God or not, I can potentially change that in a single act. That there are acts of that significance. And that's what we mean by an, a sin that is a mortal sin. So that's the, today's topic. So, looking to the lecture notes. I say the key issue in this context is can a single act reverse your fundamental option for or against God. Um, and Veritas' Splendor says yes. So Veritas' Splendor, when it came out in 1992, this is one of the pivotal issues it was looking at. So the first thing we need to understand is the difference between mortal sin and venial sin. So what that means, apart from anything else, is that not all sin is mortal, that there's sin that is not mortal. And the scriptural basis for this, as I quote there, all wrong wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that is not mortal. So it's still sinful, you shouldn't do it, but that doesn't mean it's mortal. Okay, so let's read through those quotations. There's then three little paragraphs on mortal sin from the catechism. Could we read those? So Max, could you start with the first and then Joshua? And... 
Yeah. Oh, sorry, I'm Mortal Sin. Yeah. Mortal Sin destroys charity. Mortal Sin destroys charity in the heart of man by a great violation of God's law. It turns man away from God, who is his ultimate end in his beatitude, by preferring an inferior good to him. Venial sin allows charity to subsist, even though it offends and wounds it. When the will sets itself upon something that is of its nature incompatible with charity that orients man towards his ultimate end, then the sin is mortal by its very object, whether it contradicts the love of God, such as blasphemy or perjury or the love of our of neighbor, such as homicide or adultery. But when the sinner's will is set upon something that is its nature, that of its nature involves a disorder, but is not opposed to the love of God and neighbor, such as thoughtless chatter or immoderate laughter and the like, such sins are venial. Okay, so let me unpack a few of the words there. Mortal sin destroys charity. So what are we meaning by charity here? Well, God is love. That love that is the very essence of God's life in himself between those three divine persons. That mortal sin destroys that charity. That the life of God, the life of love, should be in me. Well, mortal sin kills that. So we use the analogy, we'll use the phrase, kills grace. Now, obviously, you can't literally kill grace, but... And as much as we speak of the life of grace, it's possible for that to die within us. Now, how do we do that? By preferring an inferior good to him. So he is all good. He's the ultimate good. He's the good that satisfies us. But we can prefer something else. Turn away from him. Reach for something less than him. And this is an offence against him. It's also a contradiction of our very nature. Now, the block quote there is from Aquinas, but quoted in the Catechism. And Aquinas says something that of its very object is incompatible with charity. So the idea is that there are certain activities even though you might not be thinking love or not love, but the activity itself is just contrary to charity. And so if you do that activity, you have killed charity within you. Yep? Can we jump back just a second to the, uh, by preferring an inferior good to him? Right. Why does it not say by preferring an inferior apparent good to him? Yeah, I think you could take that as red, um, but in this context, the word goods is more broadly used, meaning apparent goods, real goods, but also if you remember a real good out of measure or out of context, so that you know the one cookie is fine, the 20 cookies not so much that it's still a real good, but it's being preferred to him. Does that answer the question? Yeah, kind of. So that it might be truly good, but I've preferred it to him. 
Now, St. Thomas says, back to the cookie example, actually, food is rarely a mortal sin because although it engages us, it's difficult for us to get so engaged in it when we'll come back to this question of consent that it actually totally kills the life of grace. It's possible, but it tends not to be so much with food. But I can choose a thing that is good, but I prefer it to him. Structurally, that's the problem of what's going on in mortal sin. So you're, you're substituting something that's not God for God as your final end. Perfect, and yes. Of using that good as a means, even if wrongly, to attain Everyone hear what Joe said? Because Joe said it better than I did. Uh, so that you should, when you relate to goods, relate to them as how we are relating to God. But you can instead relate to them as a substitute for God. Which obviously is idolatry in some sense, yeah? And if you relate to them instead of God, as a substitute for God, then you've turned away from God. And that's serious. So serious, it's mortal sin. Now we'll come on to examples of that next pages, but just basic what we're talking about is what we're looking at on this opening page. Now the point I want to... The, the quotation from Aquinas there is the draw your attention to the example St. Thomas gives and the fact that these are the examples that catechism chooses to give when it's talking about venial sins. So what are the examples? Thoughtless chatter and immoderate laughter. Now these are pretty small things, yeah? Now, um, interestingly, I don't think we have anyone in the seminary here who manifest this problem, but you can have in a community dynamic somebody with just loud, grating laughter that is just a problem for everybody. Um, now, someone with loud, grating laughter should know to restrain themselves, to know how it affects other people. That actually that is how we affect other people a matter of sin. But it's a small Annoying, but it's a small sin. So this is, and we think St. Thomas, being a religious, lived in community, he probably knew this firsthand, that's why he thought to write it down. Okay, next catechism quote, defining venial sin in contrast to that. Carlos, could you read that quote? One commits venial sin when it's less in a less serious matter, he does not observe the standard prescribed by the moral law, or when he disobeys the moral law in a grave manner, or without full knowledge, or without complete consent. Thanks. Oh, and the next little bit. sin weakens charity. Deliberate and unrepentant venial sin disposes us little by little to commit mortal sin. So obviously that trajectory it's describing from venial sin to mortal sin is one of the reasons... We should never just say, well, it's only a little sin, um, that it disposes us more by more and more 
and especially deliberate venial sin, to just not take sin seriously. So there's the sin that isn't mortal, but is sin, venial sin. So what is mortal sin? Well, I then quote the catechism's definition. Uh, Nick, could you read that there, the conditions for mortal sin? For a sin to be mortal, three conditions must be met, as formulated by St. Alphonsus the Glory. Mortal sin is sin when whose object of is grave matter, and which is also committed with full knowledge and deliberate consent. So that formulation comes to us um, from St. Alphonsus Figuri, which is fairly late in the tradition, um, but is reflecting the same doctrine St. Thomas is. So what we're going to do, basically we've got a page or more on each of these three conditions explaining what each of those means. Does that make sense as our trajectory for this morning then? So, what's over the page? Page two. So the first thing we're thinking about then is grave matter. Um, so, just kind of stating the obvious, matter is the kind of the thing. Grave matter, it's a serious thing. Uh, it's, the, it's the what, the what, what are we doing? So I say, this concerns sins considered in the abstract, so to speak. I know this is conditions probably easier to satisfy than some soft catechesis suggests. So I'd say most of the time mortal sin isn't mortal is because of a failure in these conditions. But actually there's quite a lot of stuff we can do that actually in itself is capable of breaking our relationship with the Lord. So what can it include? Well... Obviously, grave matter can include deeds, things we do. It can concern words. So gossip and detraction are among the things in the summer that St. Thomas dwells on as mortal sins. It can include looks. So the Lord says, the man who looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery with her in his heart. And then thoughts. Pride and coveting. So this is listed um, by the Council of Trent. So, you know, very solemnly defined that even our thoughts are capable of being grave matter. Now, I note there a distinction that's immediately important to note. The immediate arousal of a thought does not imply consent to it. If there's no consent, then there's no sin. If there's partial consent, there's not mortal sin, but venial sin. So that brother seminarian cackles that immoderate laughter, and I am motivated to get that butter knife and stab him. Um, the immediate arousal of that thought is a thought of something very evil. But the immediate arousal doesn't mean I've yet consented to it enough for it to be an act. Yeah. So we'll come on to the question of consent later, but just immediate there to note, saying that a thought can be grave matter doesn't mean every thought is automatically a mortal sin. 
Yeah. And sins of hatred, sins of jealousy, sins of resentment, um, sins of refusing to forgive, a lot of these can be kind of in that category where our dwelling on them or our not fully consenting in itself it's kind of has that potential to, to be mortal but we can just engage with the partial with me so far okay then quoting the catechism grave matter is specified by the ten commandments so this is the kind of classic What's grave matter? It's the Ten Commandments. Um, do you all know that from your parish catechesis? Have any of you ever covered this in parish catechesis? I would hope every teenager in the country would know this. Um, I doubt many do. Sorry. I did learn that for sure in high school, I don't remember, not in grade school. Okay, well grade school I think might be a bit much to expect. <laughs> um, so there's this standard phrase, grave matter, what is it? It's specified by the Ten Commandments. Now there's a bit of a problem there, because actually the Ten Commandments kind of cover everything. So it, it almost doesn't really tell us that much. Another bit of the grave matter, the seven deadly sins. So these are also by definition deadly, mortal, um, pride, vanity, lust, anger, covetousness, envy, sloth, gluttony. Now that's quite a lot, quite a range of things. Um, and next, gravity can vary. So as you'll have read, the catechism says, some mortal sins are more grave than others. So murder is worse than theft. They're both mortal, but that doesn't mean they're equally bad. So if you think of what does it take to kill someone physically, well, you could kill them with a butter knife, or you could kill them with a nuclear bomb. They're dead, yeah? But one is a bigger thing than the other. So not all mortal sins are equally equally serious okay I now need to articulate a very important principle that isn't in the catechism parvity of matter so there is this word parvity I've never heard of in any other context but it's very important some matter can fail to be grave due to its small quantity so for example in general theft can be grave matter, but stealing an apple from an or orchard would be considered poverty of matter. So yes, the general category is a mortal sin, theft, but here we've got a, a bit that's so small, it, it, the matter is poverty of matter. And that would be the potential for an awful lot of things we might describe. So, you know, gluttony, I said that's mortal sin but actually most of the time gluttony would be about small things um, then a, an important caveat 
next, sexual sins. So there's a general principle, all sexual sins are grave matter. There's no poverty of matter in sexual sins. You can't have a little bit of adultery. Yeah? It, it, these things engage us at such a level that if you do them, the thing itself is that significant. Now maybe you don't fully know what you're doing or you don't fully consent, but the thing itself is able to commit you, engage you at that level of, of flipping you for or against God. So quoting, so you know the CDF in Rome, it used to be the sacred congregation for the doctrine of the faith, so therefore there I'm saying SCDF. According to Christian tradition and the church's teaching, and as right reason also recognises, the moral order of sexuality involves such high values of human life that every direct violation of this order is objectively grave, gravis. Um, so there's a footnote there with a few more quotes. Um, if you wanted to, I footnotes and source. So Germain Griset, in his big fat volume on the moral life, he elaborates the tradition on this at great length, making the point, because his biggest focus after Humana Vitae was arguing about sins of the flesh. So he's had a particular relevance on focusing on this. Would something like rape, would that be considered a mortal sin, even though they're not giving full consent? The person being raped? The they're not committing a moral act at all. So therefore, something's being done to them. They're not doing something. So it's what you do that you are judged for. Now we have a duty to resist such a thing, um, but your freedom to resist is gonna depend on the context. So most of the time, because it's a matter of violence, actually the freedom to resist is pretty non-existent. Violence or the fear of violence or threat of violence. So I would simply say there's just not a moral action there at all. Uh, this is more just like a comment, and we can keep on this at fourth meeting, but this poverty of matter kind of makes me a little uneasy. It seems like you run amok in some type of scenarios, right? Because I think it makes sense, so like stealing an apple from an orchard would be not that big of a deal to be innocent, even though it's in the same thing not to do that. But like things like, well, missing mass on Sunday is a, a moral sin, but if I went to do it once, couldn't I argue that uh, it's a venial sin at that point, based on this type of uh, thought? Or like using the Lord's name in vain? I mean, I only did it once. You, I guess, do you understand what I'm saying? I do, I do. Um, so, there's obviously the potential to misapply this to just excuse yourself for anything. Um, the missing Sunday Mass example. So you can't half miss Sunday Mass. You either did miss it or you didn't. So that the quantity level isn't possible. Um, what is possible is whether it was your fault you missed Sunday Mass. Um, 
which has then the potential that it's not a sin at all. But that the act in itself, in that example, you either did or didn't miss it. So you can't have a quantity. And missing it once is a whole act of something very important. And if you know, actually, you are obliged to worship the Lord on the Lord's day, and you choose not to do so, So this is, as a criteria, has the potential for someone who is wanting to be slack to excuse themselves many things. But it's there because it's, in, effect, in a sense, it, on one level it reflects reality, that actually there are all kinds of things that it, you don't need to think too much to realise quantity does make a difference. But I think some of the examples you were giving there Actually, it would just be many things that even one of them would be a mortal sin. So I blaspheme God. Um, well, if I do it a hundred times, that's bad. But actually doing it once in terms of being a mortal sin is enough if I don't repent of it. Any other questions in this context? Because this is, this is all we're going to do on grave matter. You know, if you, five, course five hundred one, when you do, return to moral theology, at theology level, um, it'll probably look a bit longer. But this introductory level, that's all we're going to touch on. Uh, so the grammar says, "You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor." Uh, I've heard it said that like. For that to be great matter, you have to have for for a lie to be great matter, you have to have like taken some kind of oath or something. Because it's a fair false witness, it doesn't say you shall not lie, period. Yeah, no, I I um I think that's a good observation. Um lying, whether it's grave or not, will be very contextual. So if I lie about something that affects whether somebody else is gonna live or die. Um, then I've only told a lie, but actually sometimes the circumstances make a huge difference. So the thing with mortal and venial sin is that there are some people who can get obsessed about, well, it wasn't mortal, didn't matter, um, or get overly concerned that something is mortal. The big thing is when you know it's a sin, you repent of it, you go to confession and you're put right, and you resolve not to do it again. For us as priests, though, it's also important to be able to help people focus on the big sin. So sometimes in confession, you'll have people come and they will jumble together some really big things, but somehow spend much longer on things that are barely sins at all. And actually, it is part of our role to help people articulate the difference between what's important in their life and the other things. So a mother that comes in and she in great detail confesses the fact that she tasted the spaghetti sauce and broke the <coughs> Eucharistic fast. 
actually describes this in great detail to you. Uh, but, oh, and I was very, um, and I hit my husband with this frying pan. You, that, that was a bit of a bigger deal, yeah? Um, but people can, a scrupulous conscience can, this, these questions, mortal and venial and other things, just focus too much. So it's good for us as priests and confessionals clear in our minds to know what are the big things and the small things. Now, how you direct people to see that in confession, that's another matter. But we at least need to know that to begin with. So, why am I articulating that? A lot of these things, there isn't a hard line. Poverty of matter. Is there a nice clear line that we always know that's mortal, that's venial? No, we don't know. But that there is a difference. And this is a principle that helps us see. Okay, sexual sins. All sexual sins grave matter. Well, I said at the top of the page, thoughts can be grave matter. Well, what about sexual sins, sexual sins of thought? So page three, um, I've ended up with a whole page on this because over the years I've found people have pushed me on this question, so I'm elaborating it, okay? Um, because most men, this is a scenario we are familiar with, so we need to be clear what we're thinking. So sins of thought. The Council of Trent teaches that sins of thought can be mortal sins. All mortal sins, even those of thought, make men children of wrath, says the Council of Trent. So that's dogmatically defined. Rephrase that, sexual coveting. Yeah, coveting is when we want something that belongs to somebody else. Trent, which is quoted in the new catechism that you've read, teaches that the sin of coveting your neighbor's wife, one of the last two precepts of the Decalogue, can be a mortal sin. It's a secret sin, I have thought. Um, Carlos, can you read that quote from the catechism? All mortal sins of which penitents after diligent examination are conscious must be recounted by them in confession even though they are more secret and have been committed against the last two precepts of the Decalogue. For these sins sometimes wound the soul more grievously and more dangerous than those which are committed openly. Right. So, um, last two sins rather of the commandments 9 and 10 are about coveting. Commandments 6 and 9 are generally taken as the catch-all describing sins of the flesh, sexual sins. Now I apply this in the next line there. At least some, some I say, at least some sins of thought must be included in the statement that all sexual sins constitute grave matter. Repeating what I said on the previous page, according to Christian tradition, the church's teaching, as right reason also recognises, the moral gravity, the moral order of sexuality involves such high values of human life that every direct violation of this order is objectively grave. So what have I said here? I've said sins, sexual sins are grave matter. Sexual sins can send you to hell. 
of, of thought. Sins, sins of sexual thought can send you to hell. Now, I then make a distinction, having said that as a headline. So there's a variety of different sins of thought in sexual, of a sexual nature. And we can at least distinguish two here for you. A, choosing to entertain a thought about sex with an individual who's forbidden to us. From B, thinking about sex with an individual with such a desire that the only thing preventing physical sex is the lack of physical proximity of that individual. And that I say B is obviously grave matter. Do you see the difference I'm making there? Toying with a thought, entertaining it, is one type of sin. Planning it, desiring it in your thoughts so that the only reason you're not doing it is the fact that she's not here right now. Well, that's a different type of thought. And that thought, obviously, is going to be a mortal sin. And the risk with entertaining impure thoughts is our entertaining moves to the other. Not with that, you know, not with that much difficulty. So that that's why entertaining thoughts in themselves is sinful. Um, yeah, Max. Um, so you would say that the choose to entertain a thought is not, or are you just, you're just making a simple distinction there? But one, I'm making a distinction, these are different things. Right. And that they're different in their seriousness. Okay. Um, so, I wouldn't say every entertaining of a sexual thought is mortal, is I, I suppose the basic point I'm making. So I've got the, the headline there, uh, sexual sins of thought is a mortal sin. But I think I'm trying to describe one category where I think actually the nature of the type of thought doesn't merit that leap. Yep. Maybe this is getting a little too deep, but I'll consider what about like dreams? Gonna come on to dreams. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I'll come on to those. Okay, so that is describing the matter, the this. What's the this? It's got to be serious, this grave matter. Um, it is going to be a mortal sin. So now we want to think about knowledge. Do you know what you're doing? Page four. So, full knowledge. That's how the catechism describes what you need to have if it's going to be a mortal sin. Um, well, what does that mean? Basically, I say it means a lack of ignorance. So ignorance is the flip side of that. If you're trying to understand what is full knowledge, well, it's the opposite of ignorance. A lack of ignorance. You know what you're doing. Now, I then quote um, uh, a, a, a moral philosopher, Elizabeth Anscombe, who has quite a long and very clear analysis of this, but she's got this great image. It says, what it means is you've got to know what you're doing. Not in the sense of what you are doing is mortal sin, but in the sense that what you are doing is putting poison in your husband's soup. 
Yes, so I'm not pouring the poison in thinking, I hate you, God. By this act, I reject you. By this act, I kill the life of grace within my soul. I'm not thinking about God at all. I'm thinking about poisoning my husband, and I know what I'm doing. So yes, it's killing my relationship with God, but that's not the knowledge. It's I know what I'm doing. I'm not ignorant of what I'm doing. Reading through the the points that you know it's a sin, you are ignorant neither of the relevant facts nor of the relevant laws. So, um, ignorant of the relevant facts. So, she thought it was um, pesto, but it was actually poison. So, you know, she was ignorant of the fact she was poisoning her husband. Well, then it's not, she didn't know what she was doing. Now, maybe she should have taken a bit more care to find out or not have kept the poison next to the pesto. Um, But if she's ignorant and it's not her fault, then she doesn't have knowledge. Laws. Now, maybe she didn't know that it was wrong to poison her husband. Well, suppose her husband's beating her son, um, some other scenario, and she thinks this is the right way to resolve the problem. Now, intentional murder is never an appropriate means to the end. But if she doesn't realize that, she might be ignorant of the law, the moral law that applies. Yeah. And if she's ignorant, then she doesn't have full knowledge and therefore it can be a mortal sin. She's got to know what she's doing to be responsible for it. She's got to know what she's doing for it to be a mortal sin. You're not intentionally ignorant. So sometimes we rather like not quite knowing. We don't make the effort to find out the truth, which is, we touched on that when we were talking about conscience. so it might be your fault. So she, she deliberately didn't look about to see whether it was poison or pesto she was pouring in. Um, she chose to be ignorant. Or not ignorant due to your own neglect. So, and we used this phrase before when we looked at conscience, there's a difference between invincible ignorance and invincible ignorance. And you're blameworthy for acts, you commit invincible ignorance. So invincible means you cannot be conquered. Yes, Superman is invincible, um, unless apart from kryptonite. Um, Vincible means it can be conquered. Well, if there's an ignorance in you that can be conquered, then you've got a duty to conquer it, to not be ignorant. If there's an ignorance that you can't get over, then it's not your fault. And that's what we mean by invincible ignorance. Okay, and then basically I'm going to phrase all of that in the opposite direction in the second half of that page. Full knowledge, it does not mean, it does not mean you know you are in mortal sin. So St. Thomas teaches, a person cannot know whether or not he's in a state of mortal sin. 
quoting St. Paul, I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. And a person in invincible ignorance may be ignorant of the fact he's in a state of mortal sin. So we can kind of lie to ourselves so long that we no longer even know the truth. As St. Thomas would put it, our intellect gets clouded by our own sin. The next thing is pivotal. It does not mean that you explicitly choose to reject God in this act. Otherwise, contempt for God would be the only mortal sin. So, quoting the SCDF, a person therefore sins mortally, not only when his action comes from direct contempt for love of God and neighbour, but also when he consciously and freely, for whatever reason, chooses something which is seriously disordered. So, for knowledge does not mean you're conscious that it's a mortal sin and mean to commit mortal sin as such. Questions, comments, observations? Yeah, we all know what ignorance is. So this is the opposite of ignorance. You know what you're doing. And it's your fault you know what you're doing. Or rather, if you're ignorant, it's your fault that you're So if you didn't know it was Sunday and you missed Mass, then it wasn't your fault. If you didn't know that the church was closed, then it's not your fault you didn't get there. Or when you got there, there wasn't Mass. You didn't know. If you'd known, it would have been a different thing. It then would have been serious. But you didn't know, and it's not your fault you didn't. Which is different from, yes, Sam? Um, all right, I have a question. I'm going to try not to get irritated. So, a person cannot know whether or not he's in the state of mortal sin, so the acquaintance. Yeah. But I don't fully understand it because I, I can know if I've sinned in a way that, I know you're kind of just explaining that, so I'm trying to make sense of it. But I do know if I commit a sin that I shouldn't have committed based on my conscience. Okay, I was going to try and pause before answering that question, but we, no, it's on the next page, so we'll do that, and then we'll come back to general questions, because once a question's been raised, it's got to be answered before you can move past. So, page five. So here I am quoting from um, St. Thomas, um, who is echoed in the Council of Trent, Headline thing at the top there, a person cannot know whether or not he's in a state of mortal sin. So, in reverse, you cannot know if you're in a state of grace. Yes, these are the two categories. You are either in a state of mortal sin, or you're in a state of grace, even if it's weak grace and venial sin. So, can you know whether you're in a state of grace? Can you know whether you're in a state of mortal sin? 
Well, four points I make here. First, you cannot feel grace unless we cannot feel whether or not we're in a state of grace. Yeah? Grace is something supernatural. It doesn't, you don't feel it. So, you know, we all get moments when we feel God touches us in prayer. Um, but actually, it's not God because God's somehow so much bigger than what you're feeling. He, he pushes something so you feel something, but actually he is much bigger than anything you're feeling. You're, you're not really feeling grace. Therefore, you can't know by feeling whether you're in a state of grace. Second, and maybe more obviously, self-deception. So self-deception leads us to make inaccurate judgments about ourselves. And so the saints this, talk about this is a continual problem in the spiritual life. So I tell myself, well, it didn't really matter because I want to kind of make myself feel good. Or conversely, with the scrupulous, you get obsessive about something that actually isn't much of anything anyway. So self-deception is, is a problem. So therefore you cannot know whether you're in a state of grace or state of sin. Thirdly, now this is a bit more technical, a person might perform an outwardly good act, but do it under what would be called an isolated actual grace, but not flowing from the possession of sanctifying grace, which is habitual. Thus the doing of an isolated good deed doesn't prove a person's in a state of grace. So when you do something good, you only ever do that by God, God's grace. Now, if you cooperate with that properly, that should always lead to sanctifying grace, habitual grace being in you. But you might kind of just do it by an, in response to an, a prompt and actual grace, but not in such a way that it stays. So just because I can look and I can say, well, I gave money to the poor yesterday... So therefore I must be in a state of grace. Doesn't necessarily follow. So those are three points by which I'm summarising from St Thomas that you just cannot know, am I in a state of grace or am I in a state of sin? Now fourth, kind of in the conclusion of the article, Thomas says, nonetheless a person might conjecture that he's in a state of grace if certain outward indications indicate it, such as delighting in God, but he says this knowledge is imperfect. Because we can deceive ourselves that, well, I'm de not delighting in God because that's kind of pacifying to my conscience to tell myself that. Now, the same bold, it follows that we should be cautious in assuming that we're not in a state of mortal sin, especially if we realise we've performed an act that's grave in its matter. So I looked at pornography. It is grave matter. I shouldn't debate with myself, have I now put myself in a state of grace? Or I should just get to confession and be done with it. R repent of what I've done. Rather than trying to say, well, I think I'm somehow, it's okay really, I, I feel okay with God. Well, you can't know whether you're okay with God, you can't feel that. 
that that's the point here. So you can see, and I think coming back to where you were starting from, Sam, you can see I did certain specific acts. I know those were sinful. But I don't know whether they were mortal sins, whether I did them with enough knowledge and did them with enough consent to know whether they're mortal. So I looked at porn while I was drunk. I looked at porn after somebody else got me drunk because he spiked my drink in the bar. And my being drunk, and I wasn't drunk through my fault, prevented me being able to properly consent to what I was doing. So I tell myself, well, it wasn't really a mortal sin. And maybe it wasn't, maybe it was, but I can kind of lie to myself about that. So you don't know. That, that's Thomas's point. Can I come back to... Does that answer what your initial question? Um, not really. Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I just no, no, that's I okay. I don't want to derail a class or anything like that and like, get us off topic, but I just, it just doesn't make sense to me. I don't know how I'm alone. Because you know you've done something wrong, so how can you? Is that your? How, yeah, like okay, I go to I go to confession. I, I leave confession. I'm in the state of grace after right after confession. I leave. I go watch porn. Now I know I'm in a state of moral sin because it is a grave matter. I had full knowledge I was doing it, and it was a deliberative act. So therefore, I to conclude I'm in the state of moral sin, I need to go back to confession. You can be pretty sure. But we never have enough self-knowledge to, to know how we've consented. The, the significance of this principle is usually in reverse, in someone who's trying to tell himself, oh, it didn't really matter. Mm -hmm. um, so that generally speaking, I think what you're describing is is accurate. So, I, and this kind of hits on this question. If that's the case, then when we talk about this is overly theological, but like we're talking about the Eucharist, do not receive under a state of mortal sins. How can you know? And just like you should just take the Eucharist every time then, right? By that, <clears throat> because if you can't know, then to know here in states just doesn't. I would have thought you'd. Could apply that in reverse. So you know you've done something objectively serious. Um, you knew it was wrong. How fully you consented or not, um, you can just deceive yourself over. So how long should I abstain from receiving communion if I've looked at porn? So how often, to put that in reverse, do I have a right to receive Holy Communion? Well, the Church, when it gives the conditions for imparting general absolution, right? Um, so when people can't get to private confession, they're in a scenario, what would make general absolution appropriate? It would be if someone can't get to communion for a month. That's in the church law, what would be grounds for it. 
so that we live in an era where frequent communion has become so frequent, so assumed, we kind of think, I've got a right to it every day. If I can't go to communion for a couple of days, that's outrageous. Whereas most of the church's tradition wouldn't have that assumption. And I think we need to kind of be ready to challenge ourselves on that. So that when Pius X was pushing frequent communion, at the same time was pushing frequent confession. So my parents' youth, you had both of these trajectories happening at the same time, frequent confession with frequent communion. Somehow after the council, confession drops, but frequent communion remains. And so we've got a, an imbalance in our practice that we somehow need to, to remedy. I'm going to move on to consent because this package doesn't make sense otherwise. Okay, page six, I've kind of explained in reverse. So page seven. So deliberate consent is sometimes also called complete consent. So what do we think? A mortal sin, a sin that can kill the life of grace in your soul, something that is serious, it's grave matter. You know what you're doing. You've got what we call full knowledge. Did you choose to do it? Did you have deliberate consent? That's this category. Now I start by knowing that being able to consent to sin is the flip side to being free to love. So, you know, when I was younger, I remember hearing kind of soft catechesis that would say, oh, well, no one would really choose to sin. Well, that really means, well, no one would really freely be able to choose to love either. That, that, that freedom's a real thing in us. We are able to, to consent. But what might stop full consent being given? Um, Joe, could you read that quote for us? The, full, the promptings of... The promptings of feelings and passions can also diminish the voluntary and free character of the offense, as can external pressures or pathological disorders. Sin committed through malice, a deliberate choice of evil, is the greatest. So let's start with that. Sins of malice. Did I... I somehow the attraction of evil I'm enjoying doing the evil I want to that's the most serious of all in terms of consent being wrong but pathological disorders so there can be something going wrong in someone's brain and that they are not thinking properly they're not seeing properly and you know as, as pastors you will get these people that often will get religious delusions mixed in there um over the years I've had people come to see me that seem utterly normal but they're also seeing dragons flying in the sky and they are really seeing dragons flying in the sky now if if they see a dragon in front of them and they stab the dragon with a knife but it's actually their mother-in-law um, well on one level that's a matter of knowledge but the point about pathological disorders is there's a whole bunch of things that are wrong in the head that prevent you properly consenting. 
to someone suffering from certain types of depression, these effects are freedom in action. Now, how do you know if someone's free or not? Well, you don't. Um, we know as a general category, mental illness affects your freedom, affects your ability to consent. Um, but an awful lot of this ultimately only God knows. But this is a principle being articulated to you. And then external pressures. So the difficulty of your situation makes theft much more tempting than it would be to somebody else. That might affect the freedom with which you consent. It might conversely mean you do it with greater clarity rather than less clarity. So when we talked about the martyrs, you know, and their freedom in bravely taking, accepting martyrdom, well, the threat of death diminishes your guilt, but it is nonetheless, you are supposed to be willing to die rather than do the wrong thing. So it doesn't just remove all guilt. And actually, if God's giving you the grace to do the right thing, it might be really serious to be denying him. Okay, give an example here of a drug addict. So the difference here is between vice and incontinence. So incontinence is someone who isn't in control, whereas vice is someone who by his own choices has embedded sin within him. So the drug addict, I say he might be weak. He wants to say no. He's been trying to get off the drugs, but he's weak and he gives in. And his passion diminish his degree of consent. Conversely, the drug addict might be vicious. He wants to say yes, and he does say yes. But his passions work with his consent and increase its gravity. His evil deed ratifies the evil passion and confirms him in, in vice. So, drug addicts in that scenario he is consciously choosing that whole lifestyle. He chooses to be smelly, disgusting, um, poor, because he just he has chosen this lifestyle. That means more to him than anything else. Which is different from someone who is wanting to get out of that, is fighting against it but all the bad habits within him weaken him and diminish his ability to give full consent. So as I summarise in small bold print there, the same external activity, so you're looking at someone and seeing him doing something with grave matter, the same external activity might be vicious or incontinent, it might be mortal sin or venial sin, 
or possibly not even a free act at all. And if it's not a free act at all, then it's not in any of these categories. It can't be a sin if it's not a free action. Now, not being a free act at all is unlikely or rare, um, but it's certainly frequent that there are acts where our consent is diminished. And you need to have deliberate consent for it to be a mortal sin. Questions in this category? Okay, let me throw in a test that is sometimes given in the tradition whether you enjoyed it. So pleasure is one of the signs of enjoying something. Conversely, if you don't enjoy it, then you didn't consent to it. So there's a stereotypical question of a, or image of a dirty old priest in the confessional asking a young girl, did you enjoy you enjoy it? Did you take pleasure in it? Well, if she didn't take any pleasure in the act, then she didn't consent to it. So, you know, I've heard this scenario described, why would a priest act whether you took pleasure, ask whether you took pleasure in it? Well, because actually sometimes it does unveil the whole thing. And so sometimes as a priest, you might be able to reassure a young person that actually, although they did something that in itself was grave and wrong, they didn't enjoy it and didn't want to go into it. And the fact they didn't enjoy it is the sign that they didn't consent to it. So let's just, 10 minutes more, over the page, page 8, elaborate that in a bit more detail. Basically, on this page 8, um, thinking not so much just of the full deliberate consent, but degrees of consent, unpacking this a bit. So, question at the top of the page. Did you take pleasure in it? I see so this is a question of true relevance. So, Two examples, a boy confesses to being at a movie with sex scenes, but he's self-contradictory about whether he consented to watch. Well, did he take pleasure in watching them? That would be an indication of consent or potential consent. Same with the girl with sex. So the principle and the negative is a lack of pleasure is a sign of a lack of consent. Now, St. Francis de Sales, um, in the footnotes there, I quote a few other saints who unpack it in just the same way. But he offers a three-stage process in temptation. So the book I gave you the other week, The Imitation, the Introduction to the Devout Life, uh, this is in there. It says, first, a temptation is conceived. You have the thought. 
Second, the person takes pleasure in it or not. The thought comes to me, do I enjoy the thought? Do I take pleasure in it? Or do I find it distasteful? Third, if I've taken pleasure, the person either consents to it or not. So pleasure is the first step to consent. Now, St. Francis notes, pleasure can be either inferior bodily or superior spiritual in the soul. And he quotes St. Jerome, who gives the example of an imprisoned male saint who is tied to a bed while a sensuous woman caressed him, etc. Now, although his spirit refused to consent to her, his body will respond to her touch and there will be sensual pleasures. So the pleasures of the body don't mean there's a pleasure in the soul, a rejoicing in it. So just because he would experience a physical pleasure doesn't mean there's any sin. So constancy and spiritual distaste for what is occurring will be a sign of his lack of consent. There might be an extreme example, but it gives an illustration. Distaste for sin is an indication of not consenting to it. And so when we find ourselves, through bad planning, whatever else, find ourselves in the midst of an occasion of sin, trying to cultivate that distaste for sin is really important. Okay, so the last thing this morning is your question about dreams. So I'm quoting a couple of different saints saying the same thing. If our, if our sins while awake influence our dreams, then we're guilty for impure dreams. That's St. Gregory. Or St. Francis de Sales, bad dreams voluntarily procured by the depraved thoughts of the day are in some sort sins, in as much as they are consequences and execution of the malice proceeding. So basically, we don't have direct control of our dreams, but we do indirectly affect them by what we think about during the day. So these saints are saying, well, is the bad dream a sin? Well, if it's caused by our bad thoughts in the day, then we're responsible. And the mind works such that that isn't the only cause of sins, of dreaming of things of the flesh. Um, I'm sure we you know, all know periods of our life when there's been nothing in our daily thinking in that category, but something in the body moves us anyway. Um, and so there'd be no reason to attribute any sense of, of guilt to that. Now again, thinking progressively of different degrees of consent, St. Augustine notes that there's a type of consent between dreaming and wakefulness. So, you know, St. Augustine in his confessions was big on reflecting on everything in his life. Um, he reflects that when we're kind of half awake, 
there's a state where am I dreaming or am I consciously thinking or daydreaming while in bed so there can be a consent there as well um, then lastly um, I've only included this because it's in the manuals the old manuals of moral theology covered every category um, they described this Involuntary ejaculation and nocturnal emissions. So half asleep at night or in response to involuntary external stimuli. If one takes a voluntary pleasure in an involuntary emission, then this is gravely sinful. So that you're taking pleasure in it, even though you didn't cause it physically, would render it voluntary. And I've had more than one person read that and not even managed to process how that could happen physically, whereas I've had others say the reverse. Um, but the general principle is what's on that page, that if you didn't take any pleasure in it, it can't be a sin. But somehow choosing to take pleasure in something and all kinds of things is a way of engaging our will in it.